0: Everyone has remembered Everyone everything we learned last week right uh, what no? no I have this like sneaky suspicion that I give the same class every single time and I'll go crazy but I don't know if any I, I don't know if the students would necessarily notice I think every time people might catch on but if you like the same class every four weeks <laughs> that's that's maybe the that's people on the internet that's sad Very, very sad. I'm I'm losing my enthusiasm right now. Okay. That's fine. I'm going to get my enthusiasm back. That's what we're going to learn about. Now, so, um, if you recall, we discussed that there is something called a godly soul and an animal soul. Does that ring a bell? We discussed a person whose godly soul has defeated the animal soul, either into submission or actually, ultimately, transforming it. And we call such a person a tzaddik, yeah? (laughs) Such a person would be known because of their total lack of any kind of attachment to anything ungodly. They wouldn't feel any desires or emotions towards anything ungodly. Then conversely, there's someone whose godly soul has been defeated by their animal soul, either to the point of subjugation or possibly to a point of exile. And such a person is called a rasha. Right, ring a bell? And the evidence for being a russia would be what? What is the evidence that a person's godly soul has been defeated? Yeah, godly soul has been defeated. They willingly sin. They willingly sin, right? Should we talk about what that's like? No, I think we're unfortunately intimately familiar with that. Now, what about a person who the godly soul has not been defeated, but the animal soul has also not been defeated? So there's a kind of balance of power has been achieved... But because the godly soul has all sorts of advantages, ultimately the godly soul contains the animal soul, and it is the godly soul that has the um, influence in the decision-making process how the person lives. We call that person a bainini, literally someone who is in between. in between. Right? They are not a tzaddik and not a rasha; somewhere in between. Right? <clears throat> and we spoke about that. The key thing here is that 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 is the being that the it's not. We spoke about that being a tzaddik is maybe something we should all aspire to do, but it's not necessarily entirely within our control, whereas not being a Russia, that's something we are is within our control. And it's not enough that it just happens that we're not a Russia, We should actively be trying to grow in our connection to Hashem. Right? That's what we learned? Mm-hmm. All right. Chapter 16. Um, the general way I do this class is I just do it in the English because it's not a Hebrew language skills class. <laughs> on your little chart, it's color-coded what color? Blue. What? Blue. Blue, Blue is knowledge, right? All right? So I'm supposed to make sure that you're more informed when you leave the class than when you of the class. I'm no way responsible for making sure you're better at doing mm-hmm. anything. And I'm not supposed to necessarily care how you feel. It's not an inspirational class. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be focused on what our objectives are. Understand? Um, once I did teach an inspiration class, but um, I made a point of pointing out that uh, it doesn't say what I'm supposed to inspire you to feel, right? So a whole range of emotions. It <laughs> doesn't have to be good feelings. Okay, so the way would, we're do this in English, if there's some reason that I want to comment on the, the accuracy of the translation, I'll do so but you're just going to be working in English translation. This, then, is the important principle regarding divine service for the Bainani. The essential thing is to govern and rule the nature that is in the left ventricle of the heart. That means that the divine light that irradiates the divine soul and mind. Okay. That's it. That's all we're going to cover today. In fact, if we finish this today, I'll be very impressed. Okay. Um... Because this is a knowledge um, class, and knowledge is not generally gained passively, you are going to have to actively engage with the text. So I will ask questions, I will expect reasonable answers. Uh, As a general rule, don't answer the question unless you're willing to respond to follow-up questions, okay? If no one answers the questions, we sit here in awkward silence. What is the point of that sentence? What is that sentence, what piece of information is that sentence trying to convey at its core? If this was a middle school language assignment and you had to rewrite this sentence in your own words and convey the basic theme, basic idea of a sentence, how would you say that? Okay okay well I want I want I want to split what you said into two things one thing is he's telling us what is the most important thing for the main me right that there this is the most important thing right and then he's telling you what the, this thing is right you see the, so there's, 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 there right in other words um, there's actually two distinct ideas being brought together. One, that there is a most important idea of the service of a baby, and then what that most important idea is. Okay, Let's take that first part first. Who cares whether that's the most important principle? Who cares whether that's the most important thing? Who cares if that's essentially... I mean, it's not the only thing, right? There's a lot of stuff. And in general, it's an interesting thing. If someone comes and says, this is the most important point. like Why say that? Do you mean to say that you can drop the other stuff? The other stuff is like, it, it's extra, it's unnecessary? In other words, what you should always ask yourself whenever you hear um, or read a, a wise person speak or write is what would I have thought otherwise had you not said that? Right. If you didn't point out that this is the most important part, so what? I would have thought I could get rid of it. Now that you're telling me the th- stuff I thought I thought I needed, I, I now I know I can get rid of it. Like, wh- what's supposed to be changing in my understanding just by that? By establishing that concept, that this thing, whatever the this thing is, is the most important part, is the important principle, is the essential thing? Who cares? Why do I need to know that? It's prioritizing. Okay.
1: Like Pri- not necessarily saying
0: that, like, that these other things are insignificant, but this is where... The most, like if you put more work into it, you're going to see more than it is. Okay, so one idea can be prioritization. In other words, that since I have many things I can put effort into, so I'm mean going I put my effort into this, that's where I should put my priorities. Okay. Um, does that make sense to everybody? That that would be a plausible explanation of what it means that this is the... Um, the, the important point, this is the essential point This is the key thing yeah? Okay, I'm going to say that I think that makes a lot of sense But I also think it's wrong And those, those, Saying this is the important part Definitely that's what you could mean by it But I don't think that's what it means here Okay Why? So for this What is the most important part of Judaism? Just, at all like forget Benani Tzaddik who cares like what is the most important part of Judaism if we're going from the perspective of most important being the thing that should be prioritized above everything else that if I I I could work on this I could work on this this is important that's important but at the end of the day what needs to take first priority where where do I need to put my effort in first and foremost (laughs) anyone know what part of Judaism that is what mitzvot mitzvot actually doing the things that God told us to do and that goes together with not doing the things that God told us not to do. Does it really matter how you get yourself to comply with God's will? In other words, like this. I have a few options. Option number one is I can try to work on having the ideal motivations for the mitzvahs. Option number two is I can make sure that I'm, I'm doing all the mitzvahs even though my motivations are not ideal. In fact, I might be using all sorts of like tricks and ulterior motives and to get myself to comply. Which of those two things should be the priority if I have to choose between one or the other? The way I can put it, like where should I put my efforts first? The latter. The ladder. okay. Does that, because at the end of the day and why this is so we can talk about, you know, maybe some other time, maybe questions and answers, um, the actual doing of the mitzvahs is, is kind of the core thing in Judaism. And that's what we see throughout the Tanakh, through the Torah. That's what we see through, um, um, throughout the oral Torah. It's codified that in halacha. That's how we raise our children. Okay? Um, that's, that, that, that's the general rules. That, that first and foremost, make sure we're doing the right thing. Then we can worry about other stuff. So, if, so while it's true that the most important thing can sometimes mean where do I need to prioritize, but that's, not, but that's not what this talking about because this doesn't talk about doing actual mitzvahs, does it? That's not what this text is saying is the most important thing. So that can't mean the most important, you know, essential thing in, in that sense. Um, now, when a person, when a person is Trying to make sure that they're doing the mitzvahs, because that's the most important thing. There is one caveat that we do need to mention. If the way you're going about mitzvahs is in the short run going to get you to do the mitzvahs and in the long run not going to get you to do mitzvahs, is that a good idea? No. Right. But that's got, that, that just because that's just a pragmatic consideration, right? So, for instance, bribing someone to do a mitzvah, good idea or bad idea? Bad idea? Both. Context dependent, right? When the, when it, if, it, if it's on a one-off thing or if we're talking about someone who's a child, right? But as we move into more ma- a mature state of mind and we're talking about something that's more consistent, right? If you use bribes, you start to get a sense that you're being, you, you, you start to get a sense that what you're doing has no v- value and then you might not be as consistent in doing it, right? So those are real considerations, okay? But those all stem from the fact that the most important thing there in that sense, the thing we should prioritize is making sure we're doing the mitzvahs consistently. In fact, there is actually a dispute in the Talmud. There's many disputes in the Talmud. Um, but one of the disputes in the Talmud is what is the most significant verse, the verse that really the rest of the Torah depends on. And one, one suggestion is the verse, um, which speaks about the unity of Hashem. It sounds pretty important, right? The other option that is proposed is the verse should love your fellow Jew like yourself. So, kind of one that is God focused and one that is human focused, right? But both of those are rejected, and in fact, a third verse is proposed and accepted as the most central verse—the verse that all the rest of the Torah depends on. The verse that we should prioritize above all verses. Does anyone know what that verse is? Very good. Uh, There isn't such a verse that actually says living in every moment, but the verse says, um, this is the sacrifice you should offer, a lamb in the morning and a lamb in the evening. In other words, the consistent compliance with the divine will. Not these wonderful abstractions, unity of God, love of your fellow Jew, but practical day-to-day doing what you are supposed to be doing, meeting the divine expectations placed upon us. Okay, so given that that's the most important thing in terms of priorities, um, meeting the divine expectations expectation expectation is the main thing. In, in Judaism in general, in terms of, if we're thinking about the main thing and the most important thing in terms of what needs to be prioritized. So then what it says here, this is the important principle regarding the divine service the Baini, the essential thing, what do we mean that it's the important thing, the essential thing? In what sense is this the important or essential thing? It's not in the sense of prioritization. Because whatever this is talking about, I can set that aside just to make sure I'm doing mitzvahs consistently practically. Which, by the way, means that like, a lot of times we, we, we do things that are not as profound and as deep as what we're learning about here. The mind and the heart and the soul, like, you don't always need to get that deep. So what, what is an alternative meaning for this idea of important principle, central, core, whatever, however you want to phrase it? What else could a person mean when they say something like that? It's a tool, meaning that without it, I can't accomplish. so and then we really like this: like without this, you can't do the service of abeini. Is what you're saying? Yeah. And in other words, there's this thing called the service of abeini, which maybe is not the highest priority in Judaism. The highest priority in Judaism is just doing the mitzvahs regardless. But if you want to do the service of abeini, then the this is how you need to have this. If you don't have this, it's just not going to work. Do you think that that does everyone agree that that's a plausible reading? Okay. That that's more in line with what he's saying. He's saying it's like this: that if this is not what you're doing, then you're not really doing the bane anything, whatever the bane anything is. Right. Now. Um, I want to just talk about the Hebrew for a moment. The term "important principle" in Hebrew is klal gadol. Klal gadol is um, a phrase actually found in the Talmud. Um, the Tanya borrows from previous um, Torah literature, so it borrows from Scripture, borrows from the Talmud. And the author of using particular expressions is not just to be poetic and clever, but because he's actually trying to draw on those ideas from the original sources. So this phrase, "cloud the Talmud, the Talmud analyzes its meaning, and what it says is that, that the phrase is used when something has a, 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 a greater scope and a greater sense of importance. The idea being, say, that for instance, Shabbos applies to many, many areas of life and it is a very serious issue. And so therefore, the rules about violation of Shabbos are called a Klau Godel, a, a big principle. And so the idea is what he's saying is that this is, this is not just, it, it's not just a very essential thing to the service of a bainani, but this applies, like in, in of, this has far-reaching applic- implications. And it has tremendous significance, right? So this, this thing, which is the, the critical tool in serving Hashem as a deity, it has far-reaching implications and is of tremendous significance. That being said, is it the highest priority that we have as Jews in our life? No, it is not. Good? Okay, now, so what is this thing that is so, so critical It has such such far-reaching implications and it is so significant. What is that thing? And he says it is to govern and rule the nature that is in the left ventricle of the heart by means of the divine light that irradiates the divine soul and the mind. If you had to pick out one Small little subphrase out of that whole thing. There's a lot of words there. What's kind of the core idea there? What? Govern, govern. to govern to rule. So if we don't have a great, because it's all centering around that idea, then it's who's governing and how is it be, and, and who's being governed. Right? We can get that. But the notion of governance, the govern, notion of rulership, and we're gonna right now not treat those as two distinct concepts. We're gonna just treat them as synonyms. Um, when studying Hasidus generally, and Tanya in particular, um, it is legitimate to say that if these were literally the same concept, they wouldn't use two words, they're just not using synonyms just to be um, poetic or, 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 or literary. That being said, on a basic level, we don't really need to differentiate what these two terms mean as of right now anyway. So we're just gonna treat What is this idea of rulership or governance? Can anyone give me an example? of rulership or governance not not the godly soul not your heart just let's take it from somewhere more mundane more generic somewhere where it's more intuitive let's try and deconstruct it there analyze it and then we can then apply it to this more subtle arena of what's going on in our own psyche I want to have an example of something which is an example of governance rulership government. a government okay so deconstruct what it means that a government is governing is ruling what, what, what is that because this is very important whenever you whenever you have an analogy or an example for a concept what you need to do is you need to strip away the concepts out of the the concrete example and then you end up with something in the abstract and then you apply that to the thing we're interested in we ultimately want to understand what's going on mm-hmm. within the, the mind the godly soul the, this thing called the left ventricle of the heart I don't know where that came from but okay you know, we'll get to all that later so government would you like to explain government? Tanya government 101 Govern, like, rule over... Uh, Wait, pretend I don't know what the concept is. Explain it to me. You can give me examples and deconstruct them, but like, teach me. Make laws? Make laws. I make laws. I make, <laughs> make laws all the time. <laughs> Does that make it governance? They weren't chosen. They're chosen. Is that always true, though? The broad history of all of anything that we would recognize as government always was chosen. <laughs> I mean, I'm making it something. I mean, chosen is like kind of elected or something like that. Like brutal people have chosen to respect their authority. By oh. Buying. Okay. So now we have two. Okay. So you, you just introduced two concepts: authority and the respect of that authority, right? So let's think about it, right? You have someone who makes laws, right? If the person who's making laws doesn't have authority or they have authority, but that authority isn't respected, then can they actually govern? No. That make sense? right? In other words, so governance comes down to this notion of the authority cashing in on the respect for that authority. Right? Now, we could say, well, maybe every example of, of the authority figure cashing in on the respect of the authority thing doesn't count as governance, maybe, but at least as a rough at at right? So if I have somebody, um, and he has authority, and there are others who respect his authority, and he says, well, since there are those who respect my authority, therefore, I can tell them what to do, and they will do it, why? Because they respect my authority. That dynamic is what we call governance, yeah? Let's contrast that at the moment with something else. What would be an example of something where I can get somebody to do something, but it wouldn't really be governance. It really wouldn't be rulership. Bribery. What? Bribery. Bribery, right? So I come to you and I say, look, I will give you this thing to motivate you to do the thing that I want you to do, right? That's not really governance. Okay? What's another example of something that isn't Governance. Well, you talking about manipulation. Bribery I think is pretty obvious, right? I give you something, you's for something else, right? I mean, that's yeah, how most employees cheap. end up working for for their employers is they're being bribed by their employers, right? Twisting the, way the person sees reality. So convincing them that it's the right thing to do? Yeah. Okay. Is that always a bad thing? No. Okay. So can we like make it neutral. Um, if, if you mean manipulation, you mean something neutral, then I'm fine with that. But whether you're doing it justly or unjustly, accurately or inaccurately, a one way of getting someone to do something is to convince them that it is the right thing to do, right? So you're engaging their power of reasoning and making sense of it, and you are trying to get it to see things a certain way. That's not the same thing as bribing them, right? Okay. What else is not would not be governance? asking favor, right? You're appealing to their own values and goodwill. Right, okay, what else? Awesome. Force, right, so that's kind of the opposite of bribe, right? If you don't do it, I will hurt you. Okay, so we have already four things, right? Where I can get someone else, or you could get someone else to do something. At least in principle, one dynamic is, right, you can bribe them, you can give them something that makes it worth their while in exchange for doing it. You can make it seem to them like it's the right thing to do, whether you're being honest about that or not. You can appeal to some value or ethic they already have, right? In other words, ask them to live up to their own standards. Or you can threaten them, that if they don't do it, the consequences that you will impose on them will make it not worth their while, right? Governance. Rulership is none of those things, right? Governance has the sense that that person is entitled to tell me what to do because they have a certain kind of authority and I respect their authority. Does that make sense? Okay. So what I want to point out is that there's, there's something actually very profound going on here. If we're talking about bribing somebody, in a certain sense, bribing shows on the power of the one who's doing the bribing, right? If I have a lot of money, I can bribe you into doing stuff. It's actually disturbing how, 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 how much you can get people to do stuff if you have enough money or clout. So that, ref- that shows on the power of the briber, not the one being bribed. Okay, what about convincing somebody? Right. Getting, sh- that shows on the power of your ability to persuade. You yeah. know? What about forcing? It's obvious your ability to hurt them, right? But governance in a certain sense, it's very similar to making an appeal to the person's nature because when you're making an appeal to the person's nature, person's ethic, right, what you're doing is it has a lot to do with the one being um, influenced. Right? If I say you should do this because you're a good person, that presupposes that within yourself you have a sense of your own goodness, right? If I say you should do this because I'm in charge, that presupposes you for yourself have a sense of legitimate legitimacy of my authority, right? in a sense, those kinds of things are not, are not they're not, thinking of them as being imposed is a little bit misleading. Okay, so now, if my r- mind is r- governing my heart, let's not take that back. If my mind is governing my heart, is my mind bribing my heart into saying, into things? Saying, you know, heart, you should do X because if you do X, it'll be really good for you because then you get, you know, a, B, and C, is that what's happening? No. Is the heart, is, is the heart being threatened? You know, if you don't do this, then you know, make your life miserable. Is that really what's happening? No. What's more happening? The heart recognizes the authority position of the mind. Right, so there's something about the heart that makes it receptive to the mind. Right, right. The, 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 the mind is calling on the heart and saying Look, you know that I'm, I, I'm really in charge For whatever reason you, you recognize that You accept that And therefore I'm telling you as the authority figure That we should do X And so then the heart says Okay, well you know what If the, if the mind, which is the authority Says to do X Then to do X What does that mean about the, the general state of the mind and the heart as they're being as they're relating to each other? There, are they in conflict or are they not in conflict? What? No. Not really in conflict, right? So this is very interesting. Before we learn this, would your assumption have been that the mind and the heart are naturally in conflict or naturally not in conflict? Naturally in conflict. Naturally in conflict. Why would you make that an assumption? I mean because like the whole idea of like the rationale and like your feelings and emotions, like you automatically assume that they clash, like you I really, but why do you assume that? I want you to like what. What is it that underlies that? Is there a concept that you have that makes you think that seems reasonable? Is it based on experience? Like why is? It? I, I think most people do have that sense that being rational and how we feel in our heart about things are in conflict. This text seems to be of the implication that there's. Whatever conflict there is, it's not truly a conflict because otherwise this notion of rulership, of governance, wouldn't really apply, right? I just go back to the example of a government. The minute that there's a genuine conflict between the governing authority and the people, it's, right, that's what we call a revolution, right? The government is ended. It's no longer seen as legitimate, right? The people, the governed, you know, in, 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 whether it's explicit like in the case of a democracy or implicit like in the case of, you know, like a, a traditional medieval monarchy, there has to be some notion of the... Acceptance of the governed that this person or body is is a legitimate authority; otherwise, there's no governance. So, like, wh- what's different between the the underlying perspective that you would have had before this text and what this text is saying? Right? What what is it that makes you think that the mind and the heart are in such conflict? Is it an idea? Is it an experience? Whatever it is, and then where is Elkev coming from that's saying that in fact, actually, that's not? Really, the case, or maybe maybe it's not always the case. In this case, what's the difference? There's a lot implicit going on here. So, what is it? Why, why is, would most people think that the mind and the heart are really a conflict? What, what causes us to, to, to reach that conclusion? They want everything, right? Mm-hmm. right? We often see that what the what the, what the mind wants goes one way, what the heart wants goes another way, and so that makes us feel like there's a fundamental conflict. Okay, I, I would beg to differ, actually. Um, because sometimes our mind is conflicted about things, right? And we, we, we see that as like a process of working things out. In other words, sometimes when I have an issue, you know, it could be a practical issue, it could be a more profound issue, and, and your, your mind has more than one take on the subject, right? Does that mean you think that your mind is fundamentally at war with itself, fundamentally in conflict with itself? Or it means it hasn't really worked out all the specifics of this issue. So the fact that you different parts of you reach different conclusions doesn't necessarily mean that there's, a, that there's a real conflict between them. So there must be something else that's making us have that sense, and, and it is a sense that we all have, that our mind and our heart really are in conflict, different to what's being implied here. It's not just the different conclusions. What else could it be? The idea that the animal soul wants something more physical, whereas the godly soul wants something to be connected to God and it clashes the same ideas, like the mind is trying to find and connect with something higher, whereas like the heart wants something physical, something that makes it feel good. Okay. Okay. So so that already that already is is, 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 is um is something that, that, that's more fundamental. In other words, it's not just that the mind has reached the conclusion we should do X, and the heart, we no, know we should go Y. What the, the way you put it is, the, the mind is seeking something higher. And you know, we can explore by what that means. But the heart is not seeking higher. So it turns out like this. Like I said, if my heart concludes I should, learn, I should learn Talmud, and my mind concludes I should learn Talmud, I would actually say that that's just like a happy coincidence. Because what my mind has discovered is that Talmud is this higher thing, right? And therefore it is proper, it is worthy, it is it is true, whatever the case might be, to, to study the Talmud. And my heart has discovered it's enjoyable. So, are they really in agreement or they just happen to be coinciding? They happen to coincide. Right. Is it, it was... It, to use a more tangible example, um, how do you know that it's a sunny day? What? Sunny and Sun is shining. Sun is shining. How do you know though? You can see it. Very good. How does a blind person know it's a sunny day? They can, feel it. they can feel it. Now, you both have reached the same conclusion, but the modality of how you reach that is very different, right? You are experiencing the visual sense, and they're experiencing, right? which is very different. Okay. Um, and if we go a little bit deeper, what we'd say is that, that what, what, this notion of the mind, the mind is not centered around myself. Hi, what does higher mean? So uh, on a very simple level, if you think about it like this, in five years from now, your life will be different, yes? This is, this, is, this, is, this is a very low-level example. Okay. Five years ago, your life was very different, yes? What was the last thing you got upset about? Anyone comfortable sharing? Not like totally off the wall upset, but just like you were upset for more than like a minute or two. It really bothered you. Anyone want to share? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Now, imagine someone comes to you five years ago and says, you know, in five years from now, you're gonna be living in an apartment, studying in your Shaline, and there'll be a neighbor who throws your cigarettes off the, show, off, off the porch. Would you get upset five years ago? If someone tell you that's what's gonna happen five years from now? Would you have gotten upset? Would you, feel, would you feel then, five years ago, knowing that this would happen now? What do you think? You would get infuriated about what's gonna happen in five years. I'm not sure. Well, let's go the other way. If in five years from now, someone brings up, remember when you were back in my know, you were living in front me through the cigarettes, are you gonna feel infuriated in five years from now about it? No. Probably not. Is it fair to say that the degree of being infuriated is heavily correlated with how close you are in time to the event occurring? So what does that say about the actual significance of the event? Does it actually carry any real significance, or significance is just a, a, a function of how close it is to your direct experience? Right. Okay. Now is that how the mind works, though? When the mind says this is significant, when the mind comes to the sense of the significance, is that what it's doing? Saying, it's like, "Oh, this is happening right now. This is very immediate, and that's what sort of giving it sense of significance." Or is the mind getting sense of significance that has nothing to do with the fact that it's happening right now? or happening in the future. Or for that matter, it's happening to someone else. Let's use a a, a little bit of a cliche example, but it's just easy to understand. When the mind has a sense that say it's wrong to murder somebody, does the mind think it's more wrong when the murder happens to someone I care about and less wrong when it happens to someone I don't know about? Is that a difference the mind would make? So what are we seeing about the mind that's very different from the heart? That the heart is very much centered around the me, but not me in some sort of profound, abstract sense. Me in a very tangible sense. Me as I'm experiencing my life at this moment. And so the closer something is to me in time, in experience, the more significance it has to my heart. But my mind doesn't have that limitation. My mind senses significance, evaluates significance based on some parameter that's not centered around that, that temporal finite notion of myself, which then leads to another thing, okay? Which murder are you more, li- in fact, I should go with murder, let's go with this. Which of the following things are you more likely to actually do something about? Your neighbor throwing cigarettes down from their balcony, or somebody in um, Bulgaria being murdered? Do you know anyone from Bulgaria? I want honesty. That's right. But so we see another difference is not just how the heart versus how the mind processes this notion of significance, but its effect on ourselves. Because the heart is centered around ourselves, it has a very strong influence on ourselves, right? So if my heart senses this is a problem, I'm much more likely to actually do something about it, right? My mind senses that something is a problem. It's like, that's yeah, a very big problem. I can, you know, I, if if you know, we have a long lunch break, I'll tell you all about why it's such a horrible thing. So there, in other words, what I, I, want, I want you to have a sense of, it. Is, is it intuitively obvious that the mind is superior to the heart? and the heart is afraid to the mind. It shouldn't be intuitively obvious because, granted, the mind maybe is a better vessel for truth, right? Getting at the truth of things, but the very same thing that gives that mind that freedom also makes the mind somewhat impotent in its influence on our life. Whereas the heart, right, it's maybe a little bit more um, corruptive, right? It, 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 it sees things in a, in a very distorted way, centered around the limited sense of myself, but it's very impactful. Right. So there's very big differences into how they function and how they feel and how they affect us. It's not just that they reach different conclusions. So it is very obvious, both from that kind of experience, those kinds of analyzing that the mind and the heart are very different and their operation would be in conflict with each other. And yet, he's saying that there's some notion of one governing the other. Yeah. I have a clarifying question. When we're talking about the mind and the heart Like where are these things coming from Because I don't know if we're actually We're not talking about our physical heart Right? We're talking because like It's really all happening in our mind But in, I don't know in Judaism is that so, different So So I can give you the cop out answer And I can give you the real answer But I'm going to give you the real answer Okay The real answer is that we're actually talking about the heart Like actually The actual heart Okay And I will demonstrate this with the following with The following physical phenomenon When you are really angry or really passionate, lustful, jealous, I don't care what it is, right? But you, right? Um, If you take very deep, regular breaths, which is a purely physical thing that you're doing with your respiratory system, because of the linkage between the respiratory system and the cardiovascular system, right? So your heart rate slows down. As your heart rate slows down, what happens to those feelings, regardless of... What you're doing cognitively in your mind. What happens to the actual feelings? They dissipate. So what do we see about feelings? Feelings, proper, are embodied physical phenomena. Okay. Now, it is true there is, and this is what we're going to get at, is that there is a cognitive element to feelings. There's, In other words, there is some kind of relationship with the mind and the heart. And it is true that something that we might have said is part of the feeling relates to the feeling does not get affected by that. But I am not... You know, if I am anxious, if I am scared, if I'm feeling almost any feeling, right, you can, you can regulate those feelings away. Um, or conversely, you can get yourself into those feelings. right? I, I have little kids, and one of the worst things that little kids do is someone bothers them. And if the kid didn't do that, the kid does someone bothers you, right? And then what is the kid that makes it worse? There's one thing a kid does that makes it worse, and I mentioned it, but in the inverse. Little kids do this all the time, and as a parent, it drives you nuts. Someone bothers the kid. Someone took the kid's candy. They beat up the kid. They called the kid a not nice name. Whatever it is, and the kid got upset. Fine. What does the What does the kid then do? Retailate. What? Retailate. They start. They start hyperventilating. Well, they start hyperventilating. And as they do that, what happens? They get more upset. That's right. Just don't. Just like like I'm telling you, I have seven kids. Just don't hyperventilate. Breathe slowly, breathe deep. Uh, yes, something happened, and we should process it. it's also like fine. So it, 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 is not, it, 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 it is not just metaphoric language. The, the heart really is critical. This is, in fact, an argument that goes all the way back um, to some of the earliest um, philosophers in, in Judaism and the La even even amongst, um, even amongst um, ancient Greeks and, and Romans that God can't have emotions because God is not physical. Cuz think about it. Imagine someone being angry, like or imagine someone feeling love, or imagine someone feeling anxiety, like feeling it. And also imagine they're in, like, you're just, like it, 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 It's like trying to imagine a dark room Which is also illuminated It's like it doesn't work And that, that, that's an indication that, that what we sense As our actual feelings and emotion While there is a cognitive element And there's a kind of a, a content to it There is also At the core it is a very physical phenomenon And it's basically regulated Through the cardiovascular system So it's, it's quite It's meant literally um, The Kappa answer is it's a metaphor <laughs> Okay Thank you. But you didn't seem like you wanted the cop out answer. No. Okay. So how do I know? By the way, just take that. How do I know I love God? Like really love God? Even what we just said. How do I know that I love God? I it no. You should feel like some sort of tangible. Experience. Yeah. Has anyone here I ever been, know, Has anyone know. ever here been in love? the thought of the person they love makes them they're, 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 again, the blood, right? They flush they get queasy to the stomach right? Temperature changes right? If it gets too intense you start hyperventilating which makes it more intense, right? Okay Does, does thoughts of God do that to you? It's an interesting question <laughs> What do we mean to be, have fear of Hashem? You've ever, like, taken a test where the consequences were were not, like, you know, life and death, but, like, I don't know, like, you know, whether you get into college or not. You ever ever do something like that? Did you feel anxiety? Did you feel fear? Did you feel things like that? Okay. Does the sense that you might not do the mitzvah properly and might transgress his will make you feel that way? Or not? Yes those moments of like Aram or it's like oh it was just like you were hot, you were in the sun or, probably like, you were caught up in the like what is it called like for area sort of, like, so what's the difference between that and then like experiencing like real women or Um well I'm just gonna not go into all these it's just a, a simple thing let's say that you love somebody Um, It's not going to be the case that only um, once in a while in very random and unpredictable ways that thoughts of them make you feel that kind of, you know, your temperature rise, your heart start fluttering, your your face flush, right? It'll be pretty consistent, right? it would kind of directly correlate. The more they're on your mind, the more that happens, Right? I and mean, you tend to see is a lot of times, right, it has a lot to do with like what kind of music would be, like, like when they're playing a certain music, then you feel like very inspired in love of Hashem, or you just like were at an amazing, like, if it has a lot to do with, with external things to the awareness of Hashem, then it's probably not love of Hashem. Just like if, you know, if you're not, you know, some people are really into sports. You know how we know they're really into sports? Emotionally? Because when things happen in the sport that they, right, they get emotional, right? Like they're having good days, they're having bad days, very much based on the news and the sports section of the newspaper or you know, the website or whatever it is, their Twitter feed, I don't know, yeah? But you can take anybody, and I mean almost anybody, and as long as they're a willing participant to a major sporting event and then get worked up about the sporting event simply because of the nature of group dynamics and, you know, human psychology, it doesn't mean they're actually feeling things towards the sport. So you do the same thing with Judaism, sure. And do we do that? Sure. Does it motivate people to do more mitzvahs? Sure. Is that important? Yes? yes. If you're, but it's not love of the Mechel. Like, for example, if, like, every week you, like, Shabbat scandals, whether you're alone or with people, like, you feel like a sense of, like, love or calm or something. That could be genuine. That could be genuine. I mean, there's a separate question, which is, and I'm not going into, like, the exact analysis, but as a general, like, first-order approximation... It has to be consistent with regard to one's awareness of Hashem, not other factors. The same with all emotions, right? How do, I know, how do I know that you're afraid of something, or how do you know that you're afraid of something, is that you pretty much have consistent kind of these kind of fear responses of like, your stomach gets queasy, you get tense, mean, people experience fears physically in different ways. Um, pretty consistently to that thing, or things that evoke awareness of that thing, right? That I means you have that kind of a fear, right? Make sense? And by the way, emotions are really felt. Okay. So, given all of that, what must be true about our heart and our mind that the heart at least has the capacity to respect the authority of the mind? Because that's what's implicit in this idea here, right? That the heart recognizes that the mind really is entitled to some kind of authority. What makes that possible? They're very different, right? Let's go back to governance. Where does the respect for the authority come from? The governance. Let's go one step further. You have an authority, right? Whether it's an individual or a body. Where does the respect? What? What? Where does that notion in the govern that this person or this group of people, their authority is legitimate and should be respected? Where does that come from? Recognition that they have something more than you do to offer. To offer? What do you mean? Like they're going to bribe you? No. But to function. Like we need that. Yeah. So we in those, I can't we can't function without them and so therefore that makes them that gives them that gives them a, a kind of an authority. Okay. So that's like a more modern idea. Like we we're a society and like in principle like no one's really glad to boss me around, but we all understand that like you know, people we're gonna just like de- devolve into some kind of like, you know, horrific hellscape without some kind of like Authority, and so we try and figure out who are people that we are willing to grant that authority to for practical, pragmatic purposes. That's what you're saying, something like that. Okay, so that's kind of like you know the notion of representative democracy and stuff like that. Fine. Um, does anyone have another model? I mean, we haven't always lived in publics and democracies. Maybe like uh, in a the way, they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to to rule with some sort of compass okay so there's a recognition of their intrinsic superiority no no no, not necessarily superiority but well maybe i mean maybe but just just knowing like if the heart were to know that the brain was trying to do the right thing even if it doesn't feel good then it would still it may listen to it sometimes because it knows that it's the right thing but why does the heart care about the right thing because it has feelings. <laughs> yeah, but, but those feelings are centered around what things feel like, what the experience of Dude, things are like. Yeah, sometimes things can feel good if you're doing the right thing. That's true, but we want to be very careful about that. Okay. okay. This is going a little bit off topic, and I didn't intend to go into this, but I do think it's important. There is there's something that people do, which is when they find something that explains certain phenomena and it makes a kind of intuitive sense. They try and apply it to everything. Mm. It is very clear that many of the things we so-called value is only because of how they make us feel. Simple example, um, I have no profound value for putting dead animals and plants into my mouth and crushing them to a pulp. I just don't think that's an important thing to do, but it's enjoyable and that's what gives it its value. It's called eating, right? It's funny, like, if you free phrase what you're doing when you're eating food, that's what you're doing, right? You're taking dead plants and animals and you're crushing them into a pulp. And, like, if you just think about it that way, it's like, it may be necessary in order to, like, sustain you, but, like, you don't, like, that having any, any strong emotional attachment. And strong emotional attachment comes entirely from the sensory experience of it, right? And so the causal relationship there is kind of, like, pretty clear. Like, and in fact, you actually have two different things. There's, like, I need to eat that comes from a sense of, like, I cannot function, right? Like, Anywhere from like the raw pain of hunger to like an awareness that I haven't eaten and it's having a a negative effect on me or whatever it is versus like most of our desire to eat, which is purely deriving from the anticipation of the experience of putting those dead plants and animals in our mouth and crushing them into a pulp, right? But now let's think of other things. Is that really how, let's say, caring for other people works? In other words, is it really the case, and no to talk about animal souls, godly souls, just basic generic human experience, that my psyche's first sense that there's any value in helping other people is caused by the pleasure it experiences when it happens. And a lot of us are, are, are kind of like, um, I would say brainwashing thinking that because you draw a parallel between the eating and the and that but but first off and Torah says that's not true but I think also if you think about it you'll see very quickly that's not true um, what is the actual experience of helping people feel like in the moment does it feel good does it feel bad does it vary based on a variety of factors it feels good in the moment when you are doing something that is helping someone else? I mean, necessarily. It depends. What? It varies. I would say it varies. It really depends. what you're the, anyway. Now, what is the experience of reflecting upon the fact that you are or have helped somebody else? Notice That's the difference. Feels that feels very good, right? So there's an interesting I don't need to reflect on the... You know hamburger in my mouth For it to, to be an enjoyable experience so It's like there's a direct sensory pleasure That happens when I eat a hamburger Right Here that's actually not true Like I need to reflect On the thing And I, some kinds of Helping people you can do that simultaneously And that's probably what you were talking about um, and, and how good it feels has a lot to do With how much you, how much you allow yourself To reflect on that So then like why are you doing it why are you helping people in the first place which is now getting to so then why are you helping people in the first place and what what i think is is a much more reasonable way of thinking about it is like this is that you actually see some value of it independent of how it makes you feel and that a motivates you to do it to some degree or another and it also makes you feel good knowing that you've done something that you see as valuable so the pleasure is, 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 is deriving from the value, not the value being derived from the pleasure. And that's why it depends on awareness. I need to be aware that I've done something of value in order for it to feel good because what feels good is not the direct experience thereof. But, right? So if somebody, you know, if, if, if somebody refuses to see the good in helping people, it's highly questionable whenever you feel good to them to help people. Right. So, so, then that, so that must mean that, that there's a very big difference between I'm helping someone and it feels good and I'm eating chocolate and it feels good. I eat chocolate, the chocolate causes a pleasurable sensation which then itself provides motivation to eat more chocolate. Helping people, I have, and we're going to leave this as a blank, come to recognize that there is something valuable about helping people which then has two effects. One effect is it motivates me to help people. Two it gives me pleasure to know that I have done something of value, which then creates a feedback loop about wanting to do more of it. And this is where the issue of, you know, of that ends up corrupting because if you, if you end up letting that feedback to be the primary motivator, what ends up happening is you start looking for ways to help people which maximize your ability to feel good, but not necessarily maximize your sense that you maximize the reality of the real value of helping people. Right. And so you have to have it, It's a more complex relationship um, And I think it's important to realize that Because Not everything is We're just, we're just not as hedonistic as, as, as you know Extending everything out of like food Would make us think Good? Okay um, So Given the fact that my heart really is into How things feel and my mind is into some kind of like higher truths, you know, universal value, whatever it is, Why, why should my heart listen to my mind? If it's just because my, my mind is going to convince the heart that it'll ultimately feel good, then that goes back to a bribery kind of thing. And like I said there, if that's really what's motivating you to help people, your helping people is going to get more and more corrupt over time. You're gonna start using people for the feeling of helping them, than actually helping them. So go back to the government. Why would the people respect the authority of the government if it's not a democracy? So it's chosen by God. It's chosen by God. Okay. Okay. So let's let's take that idea. It's chosen by God. Okay. So first off, let's just. It just says, as like, use a kind of a visual represent, representation. In the first thing, the democratic model, um, the the authority is being granted from the consent of the government, right? And those these people, it's not they're, they're respecting the authority is actually what's endowing them with authority. But in this, you know, the divine right of kings to rule that you know appointed by God thing, it's actually the reverse. What's giving them authority is coming from above, from God. And then the people are recognizing that and that's what, what gives So the respect of the authority and the granting of the authority are actually two different things. God grants the authority and then the people respect that authority. Okay. So now, the, the, I'm going to take this idea of God and I want to like, really not something you're supposed to do as a rabbi, but I'm going to do it anyway, secularize it a little bit so that we can then apply it to what's going on inside of us. God is the provider. If God has appointed the king, that means God's providence, God's blessing, which everybody needs to survive, is coming through the king. In other words, what's I think important to understand is that this idea of God appoint the person as the king, it's not simply that God has given the, this person the authority to make laws. But that person is kind of like the, the the place where the people plug into God and receive their blessings from. Um, kind of like the way the heart sends blood to the rest of the body. It's actually it's a statement used in, 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 in our sages that the king is like the heart of the people because it sends the blood. And then actually finding the Tanakh that there's almost a sense of like the state of the king is reflective and causative of the state of the people. That the, 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 the. So if... Hashem's blessing providence right which is what we all need in order to thrive is coming through the king then the king has become um the source of my life not the ultimate source of my life but the proximate source of my life the king has become Right? And this is different than a bribe because a bribe is an external thing, right? It's like you have your life and you could use more money and I will give you that money in exchange for you doing something else, right? But I'm coming as an external agent. This is something different, right? It, it, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't say that like, like my, the heart is bribing the arm by giving it blood, oxygenated blood, right? Because oxygenated blood is the very life, I was gonna say blood, but that would be redundant, life of, of the limb. Right, and so, the, and, and so if you're thinking about it like this It's core to And this goes back to like a pre-modern conception Of what it means to be a person It's core to your conception as a person That you are an adjunct You are an aspect You are a facet of this and greater, greater truth embodied in the king And so to rebel against the king Is in a certain sense to rebel against your own self to obey the king is, in a sense, to live to, to live up to your true identity. That's a different notion of governmental authority, right? Very different than the... Right? I mean, that, that's, you know, the shift between, you know, if you think about like this divine right of kings to rule versus, like, you know, representatives of the people who govern the people on behalf of the people. Very different. Okay. So, one of the key things that Hasidus teaches us... Um, and it's not a novel idea in Chassidus, but Chassidus makes a big deal about it, is that a human being is fundamentally different than an animal in in many respects. But one of the respects is that a human being's emotional life, their heart, follows from the life in the mind. In other words, just like the, the divine blessing goes from God to the king and then from the king to his subjects, the life of the soul goes into, the, into the, the, the psyche of the person into the mind and from the mind into the heart. Which means human emotions are at their core predisposed to be receptive to rational thought. Right? That's also why our emotions are very much based on our concept of things rather than our direct experience of things. Does that make sense? In other words, um, I'll give you my favorite example. How does it feel, just like on a core level, like just in terms of like pleasant or unpleasant to be confused? Unpleasant, Unpleasant, right? There's like a, like just on a very kind of raw, you know, it's like, you know, the body can be too hot, too cold, or the temperature can be just right. If your mind is encountering things that are confusing, it is, there's a kind of unpleasantness to that. Okay. Now I'm gonna ask you emotionally, how does it feel to be confused? I'm gonna give you two choices. Frustrating or exhilarating. What? Well, like well, well, that depends entirely on how you make sense of what is happening when you're confused. If what you're making sense of is you've encountered the borders of your knowledge and are now engaging in the adventure of exploring the unknown parts of the truth, of reason, of the, your capacity, right? Then you will experience feelings of exhilaration. If on the other hand, right the way you are conceptualizing this is that you've encountered something which is a threat, something which emphasizes your own smallness and, in, and inabilities, that you're going to feel emotions of frustration, right? And so those kind of more emotional experiences are not directly the result of kind of the raw facts, but more of how we have conceptualized them. Is that what happens with the dog? that dogs have emotions. In fact, by the way, it says in the guide for the Replex, dogs and all, and all the higher functioning animals have emotions that are as intense, if not more intense, than people. So in other words, if you were to ask the question, who feels more scared, a person or a dog? The, the, the Jewish philosophers say, more, all things being equal, cool, probably a dog. Who feels greater compassion for their offspring? Person or a cow? Cow, because yeah. compassion for offspring is kind of an innate kind of an emotional experience, at least for mammals, um, which does raise some interesting ethical questions, right? <laughs> but we'll save those for another time. But but this actually says quite explicitly that you know, it's, 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 the difference is the difference is that human emotions don't really develop beyond just kind of a basic instinct level unless they're the result of the development of the mind. Which means, and to put it in other words, is that the heart is a willing subject of the rulership of the mind. Which of course creates the question, why doesn't our heart always listen to our mind then, right? In other words, what, the idea is that the, 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 the ability for the mind to rule the heart stems from the heart's willingness to follow. And that's built in because the heart gets its vitality from the mind. In a human being, the, 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 the life flow of the soul comes through the mind to the heart. So the heart is a willing recipient of the mind. A willing follower of the mind. So then... Why does it always happen? Why, well, you know, Just because my mind has decided that something is the case, how come my heart doesn't just automatically follow? Does that question seem clear? Okay. Tomorrow, we will start to talk about that. We will give one answer, the answer that has already been alluded to in Tanya, although it hasn't been said so explicitly, but it's been addressed. There is another answer in chapter 17. Which chapter are we in? So am going to give you the answer in chapter 17? No. I'm going to give you the answer in chat that's been, already, that's been addressed or at least alluded to until now. And then we'll get into some of the religious. Who is being governed? What is this left ventricle? What is this emphasis on the nature of the heart? And all that kind of fun stuff. Like I said, I'd be very impressed if we finished the sentence today. Thank you.